Tyler, I have a question for you. Great. I love <laughs> questions to start off. Okay. So everyone in academia knows that sometimes you write something you think is really great, you submit it to a journal, and you get back reviews. And sometimes those reviews are uh-huh. super helpful. Actually, maybe mostly they're pretty helpful, but there is case of reviewer two. And uh-huh. Reviewer two. two. So the the sort of mythology of reviewer two is that, you know, reviewer one will say something sort of nice and give constructive feedback and reviewer two will just absolutely decimate you um, and and make you think that you should never write anything ever again. Has that ever happened to you? Uh, Yes. (laughs) Uh, The only the only difference is that I generally don't think what I write is very good. (laughs) And so reviewer number two confirms (laughs) more than decimates my ego. It's a, that's healthy, I think. But <laughs> yeah, so yeah, reviewer number two, often scathing, often um, doesn't read, doesn't seem to mm-hmm. read the article that is <laughs> being reviewed. Um, but yeah, it is a common trope, common idea within academics that re- reviewer number two is the one to, if you can make reviewer number two happy, then maybe you're going to get mm-hmm. your paper published. All right. So you have any examples for us, maybe? Yeah, so I have a paper that I wrote, and I got to be honest, it maybe wasn't my best paper, <laughs> still isn't my best paper. Uh, I wrote it for a class in grad school, which isn't just a bit of advice. If you're submitting a paper you wrote in a grad school class straight away to a journal to be reviewed, maybe it's not poised for success. Yep. So I tell my grad students, I think you should try to publish in grad school. It's a good idea, but definitely run that paper by your advisor first just to make sure it's ready for publication. Yeah. I had a paper that I wrote in a class. I don't know if we had this class together at St. Louis University, but it was religious methods, Mm -hmm. uh, which isn't really my wheelhouse, but I wrote a paper comparing the idea of like sacramental suffering, like the idea Mm -hmm. that there's redemption through the the physical suffering in Catholic theology. Mm -hmm. So kind of uh, compared the theology in sacramental suffering in Roman Catholic specifically uh, teachings with Buddhist teachings. Oh, interesting. interesting Yeah, I thought it was fairly interesting. I did run it by my professor and he gave me glowing reviews. He said it was great. And so I was... On cloud nine. Buoyed up. I was excited. (laughs) Yeah. So I submitted it to this journal, which shall not be named. And it got back some reviews. The first reviewer, number one, was kind. I think that he recognized, he or she or they recognized that it was a grad student submitting maybe for the first time and was generous with their comments. But reviewer number two, it was brutal. Mm. So this is what reviewer number two said about my paper. And again, sacramental suffering, not my wheelhouse, but I was dipping my toe into it. And the review said, quote, as a Catholic theologian, I would be embarrassed if this theory were offered to the wider public <laughs> as some sort of commentary on the teachings of the Catholic Church. <laughs> so good. That's so good. I would be embarrassed. <laughs> like personally so. embarrassed for my religion to be represented in this yeah. way by this person. <laughs> yep. That's pretty so. good. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a good one. How about you? Any reviewer number twos? Yeah, so I was thinking about this um, and... We have published exactly one paper together. Um, true, true. Which I, I like. I think it's a fun paper. I actually originally wrote it in grad school and then 
later on went back to it and said, I think there's something here. And then I reached out to you because it had a big law element to it. I said, do you want to publish this together? And then we involved somebody else as well. Um, okay, so we got our first set of reviews back. I think we might have submitted this to a couple of places because maybe this review was so devastating it didn't get published in this journal. I can't remember. <laughs> okay. I can't remember either. So I just like as a point of comparison was was comparing the two different reviewers. So reviewer one said something like, I commend this author for going after this topic, one that is sensitive and controversial, standing against the tide of a tremendous amount of industry money and momentum. Because of that, their case needs to be well-reasoned and quote airtight. This paper, as it stands does meet those standards. That's a pretty good... Excellent. That's excellent, right? Ex yeah. Standing against the tide of industry money. I mean, what more could we ask for? We're heroes, and they confirmed it. Yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> that's okay, right. Okay, so that's a great review. Okay, so the reviewer went on and did have suggestions, but overall, like the paper. Reviewer two, this is how the review starts out. The reviewers express a paternalistic view that avoids any nuanced discussion of the difference between unproven and untested clinical treatments. At best, this can be seen as extremely unscholarly. <laughs> I love that. At best, it can be described as extremely unscholarly. Yeah. So what's worst case scenario? If that's the best case... <laughs> What could possibly be the worst? Case? It's so good. It's it's like I want this. This is like the tagline of this podcast. At best, yeah. extremely unscholarly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's going on t-shirts. Yeah, going on t-shirts. Okay. All right. So in the same vein, mm -hmm. have you? What is the f your favorite sentence or favorite line that you've ever published that mm -hmm. can be quoted to Devin Stahl at all? <laughs> Um, okay, I was thinking about this when you asked me in preparation for this teaser. Um, the, it's That's so hard because, as you know, I've published so many things. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Books, articles. You yeah. name it. Um, but so I'm actually, this isn't published yet. It will be. So, you know, wait for it. But I'm writing this book right now on monsters, about human monsters. Uh -huh. And I, in the chapter I'm currently writing... I wrote a sentence. It's the first sentence of the chapter that I really like. Can I read it to you? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Please. In 1601, 21-year-old Marin Le Marcy gazed up at the gallows from his prison cell in Rouen, France, hoping against hope that his hidden penis would reveal itself and save him from execution. Oh. <laughs> Gosh, that is amazing. That's a pretty good sentence, right? That's a... Yeah, that's a great one. That's the opening line to the book? It's the, or just to, to one of the chapters? To one of the chapters, yeah. To one of the chapters, yeah. Uh, I, I couldn't be more excited <laughs> to, to read the book. Um, awesome. Okay, so my favorite one that I've ever got published, and my students will recognize this because anytime that anybody asks a question in my classes, my answer is always, it depends, mm -hmm. to the point that everyone chuckles and says, it depends, and then we move on and actually talk about it, what it means. Um, but I love the word because it, I love the, the answer because it depends is always the right answer. Mm -hmm. And it's whatever the answer is depending upon that is actually really kind of the meat of the issue, right? And so in this article, I was asked to review and write a commentary about a clinical ethics case 
situation. Mm -hmm. And the issue was about patients leaving the hospital against medical advice, and maybe or maybe they don't have enough capacity to actually do make that decision, right? And so the, the concluding sentence in this article uh, that can now be attributed to Gibb, Redinger, and Barker et al. Uh, from 2020 is the full sentence, open quote, it depends, close quote. <laughs> it's a full sentence. <laughs> so, That's right. Full sentence. It it depends. So ne- henceforth and forever, anytime that anybody says it depends, I expect a citation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really so. reasonable expectation. <laughs> <laughs> it's novel. It's it's uh, ac- academic. It's pithy. Um, uh-huh. It's quotable. So yeah, it depends. I think you nailed it. <laughs> so that might also go on a T-shirt. Uh, the uh, emerging uh, waiting for his penis to emerge might not go on the T-shirt. No, no, I season. yeah, so. yeah. But but it'll be a great book. Maybe we'll do a whole yeah. podcast just on this book. That would be amazing. So so speaking about teaching, what are some of the big cases that you really like to teach mm-hmm. or that you teach, find yourself teaching often? Big cases in bioethics, health law, kind of the things that we deal with. Yeah, so I, I do teach. I teach a couple of different bioethics classes um, to different levels of students. And there are a few cases I always go back to because I think that they're so, whether or not they were important at the time, although I do think they tend, they were important at the time, they sort of encapsulate like a lot of different controversies in bioethics. One that I go back to again, again, is the Ashley X case. It's a great case about a young woman who had a intellectual disability and her parents were considering various, um, procedures on her body to help keep her small so they could take care of her at home. And it ignited a controversy about, you know, what what are we allowed to do to children? What can parents consent to? What can they request? What is the meaning of the body? Um, what does it mean to have a disability? And how does that affect quality of life? These are, in my mind, like really big, important questions. And the case encapsulates those questions so well. So it's great mm-hmm. as a teaching case. All right. So Ashley... Ashley X. Ashley X. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, for me, I think the case that I end up going back to most often, and this is probably because I've read more about this specific case than anything else in my entire life, is the Terry Schiavo case. Mm. So this is a end-of-life, uh, complex, conflicted decision-making case that I think, uh, as you peel back the layers of it, it's really interesting to see how pervasive and how involved a lot of different parts of society, parts of our uh, country and media really got involved in ways that were unique, um, but also kind of predictive of other ways in which these complex clinical ethics cases um, hit the media. So Mm -hmm. the Terry Schiavo case is my favorite case to teach. Mm -hmm. Well, and it just occurs to me that these are both like cases of our generation, like our students weren't alive (laughs) when these cases (laughs) happened. And so they won't be as familiar with them. So in that sense, too, like, it's not like, oh, yeah, I remember the Terry Schiavo case. They're like, nope, Mm -hmm. no idea who that is. Right. Yeah. So when I asked my students, have any of you heard of the Terry Schiavo case and put up her picture? Some of them are like, "Uh, Florida, like it happened in Florida Mm -hmm. a long time ago. The late 1900s, as my kids like to say. Oh, no, I hate that. (laughs) (laughs) So, well, this season on Bioethics for the People, we are going to profile and explore and get into the weeds of a bunch of these big cases. 
Awesome. So I will say shout out to my dad who's like, why don't you guys talk about Terry Schiavo? Why don't you guys talk about, you know, the big cases that made the media? And I'm like, we will, we will. And I've been saying that for five seasons now. So <laughs> we're finally doing it, dad. This season is for you. That's right. <laughs> we're going to do the big cases, the big, the big hitters. The, the cases that made the field. I think the cases that really established that bioethics was a field worth engaging. Wow. Too much? Well, I don't know. Maybe we're overselling it, but here we go. Season five, Bioethics for the People.